Hi, this is Ray. We're on episode 14, and we're having a discussion with Phil Kaiser on his most recent book, The Divine Right of Resistance, Biblical Options for Opposing Tyranny. Welcome to The Confessionalist. This is Ray Simmons, and I'm sitting here with Dr. Phil Kaiser, president of Biblical Blueprints and also senior pastor of Dominion Covenant Church here in Omaha, and he is my pastor, my mentor, and my friend. So happy to have you here. Phil, we've been talking about this for quite some time. We're finally getting around to it. Yeah, thanks. It's a privilege to be with you. I've really enjoyed your podcast, and it's a a privilege to be on it. Thanks, Phil. Well, here it is, the book. I'm holding it in my hand. And um, one of the things that you say in here, you're speaking of the heroes of freedom in the past. And, and this is what you write. The current popular interpretation of Romans 13, 1 through 7, would never produce men and women like the one praised in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. Wow. Okay. That's amazing. Is our understanding of Romans 13 today, in our, even in our circles, even in circles of Bible-believing Christians, is, is our understanding that messed up? I would say that it is. The way many people today interpret Romans 13, uh, Gideon should have just blindly submitted to the powers that be, the Midianites, mm-hmm. uh, rather than mounting stiff resistance. Uh, Jonathan and David... Uh, should not have owned swords. It was illegal. That those swords had been disarmed for most of the population, and uh, yet they owned swords. Uh, many of the prophets of the Old Testament were routinely beaten because of their verbal resistance to tyranny, and that was certainly the case with John the Baptist. Uh, he uh, rebuked Herod for all of the evils that he did, and that was why he was imprisoned. If I understand the the current interpretation of Romans 13 in, in our, in our um, environments, it's something like this. We as Christians are to obey the state in all things unless they tell us to do something sinful, right? So that seems okay. What's wrong with it? Well, for one, it would make Jesus a sinner because uh, Jesus disobeyed the civil government on a number of occasions on issues that would not have been a sin for him to, uh, to obey. For example, in Luke chapter 13, Herod told him that he needed to leave his jurisdiction now. Uh, and it wouldn't have been sinful for Jesus to leave. Uh, he was planning to leave in about three days. Mm. But Jesus actually told him that uh, he had no jurisdiction to do that, that he was going to continue there for another three days. And he even called Herod a fox, uh, which is a kind of a derogatory term, but appropriate for a tyrant. Uh, he had overstepped his jurisdiction. Uh, Jesus refused to perform a miracle when Herod asked him to do so. Herod really wanted to see a miracle. Yep in Matthew 26, uh, 68, and many examples could be given of the apostles and prophets disobeying civil government on issues, even when those issues would not have involved them in sin. For example, uh, Paul and Silas refused to leave Philippi when the chief magistrate asked them to do so, begged him to do so in Acts chapter 16. Uh, the 144,000 in the book of Revelation um, 
bought and sold on the black market. Why? Because the government had insisted if you don't wear the mark of the beast, you can't buy and sell. Yeah. Now, historically, there have been two wrong interpretations of uh, Romans uh, 13. The first wrong interpretation is sometimes called the divine right of kings or rex lex. Rex stands for king, lex for law. The king is law. So Mm -hmm. whatever the king says, you have to obey. Uh, He represents God to you. And the second uh, view was, no, there has to be exceptions. Uh, If if they command you to uh, do something that God has forbidden or they forbid you from doing something that God has commanded, then in those circumstances, you have to disobey, but in all other circumstances, you obey. And it's really not an adequate definition. It's kind of exciting uh, in that today, uh, we are actually opening up our Bible, and we're realizing that we need to figure this out. Tyranny is increasing, and and so we're turning to Romans 13, typically. Uh, but I, I think we're looking for a construct, a rubric to to approach tyranny um, so that we can preserve freedom. And most importantly, we can preserve the crown rights of, of King Jesus. So those are two wrong understandings. You, you mentioned Rex Lex and the exception, the exception one. What What is the right understanding of Romans 13? Well, I think the Puritans in England had it absolutely right. Uh, they articulated really a, a long historical argument of Lex Rex. Lex is the law of God stands above the king. The, the law is king is yeah. really literally what that means. And so uh, we call that the regulative principle of government that God gives civil government delegated, limited, and enumerated powers. And you've probably heard those expressions mm-hmm. in early America, uh, delegated, limited, enumerated uh, powers. Uh, this principle, a regulator principle of government, used to be the dominant reform view. First uh, uh, Timothy 6.15 says that there is only one potentate, the king of kings and lord of lords. And James 4.12 says there's only one lawgiver, that's God. So if there's only one potentate and only one lawgiver, there can only be one law that stands above these and limits these. And really, apart from the law of God, you don't have a limitation uh, over civil magistrate. You have no restraints to what they can do. All right. So if I understand your, your book right, this universal approach that, that we are to obey everybody who's an authority for all laws, unless they call us directly to, to, to sin, that doesn't hold up to Scripture. I mean, so we, we might get that interpretation. You know, you would say it would be a wrong interpretation from Romans 13. But when we when we zoom out and look at, at all of Scripture, we we see uh, of the the more complete picture, and that's what that's what God wants us to do, right? I mean, we He equips us with the Word, He equips us with the Spirit, and He wants us to look at the whole Scripture and compare Scripture with Scripture. So, um, what is wrong with this universal approach? All who are in authority need to be obeyed in all laws except for sin. Well, it doesn't take the language of Romans 13 very seriously. Uh, let me give you some examples of universal um, principles here. Verse 1 says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. There's no exceptions there. Okay. Let every soul. And so that means the Apostle Paul, uh, when he 
disobeyed? Was he in sin? No, the scripture would indicate not. Certainly Jesus was not in sin, and yet he's one of those every souls. And so uh, that does not allow for any kind of an exception. To take the Rex Lex view would involve Jesus in sin, as well as the apostles and many other uh, people. Uh, For example, the priest Jehoiada hid Joash, the rightful heir to the throne, in opposition to Queen Athaliah. And he instigated a political coup to, to dethrone him, uh, dethrone her, execute her. Okay, I'll give you another example. Second half of verse one says, there is no authority except from God. Well, the divine right of kings, in other words, the Rex Lex view would say all authority that Pilate, you know, exerts right. or that Caesar exerts or Ahab or Pharaoh is a God-given authority. If you disobey their laws, you're disobeying God's authority. And they're taking that seriously there, but it contradicts other verses, right? Um, So we would say, well, if that was the case, why would God in certain circumstances authorize resistance, like John the Baptist's resistance to a king? Isn't that God resisting God's authority? Uh, That that does not make any sense. And uh, Revelation 13.2 actually contradicts what they're saying because it says the dragon gave him authority. It's not God. When a tyrant arises, we would say that's not a God-given authority. In this case, it's Satan who gave that authority, and God would resist that authority. Here's another example. Verse 3 says that the rulers he is talking about are never a terror to good works. Never. Hmm. They're never a terror to good they always praise good works. Yeah. Well, Nero didn't do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nero was a, a constant terror to good works and praised bad works. So I think it's better to say that Romans 13 is authorizing civil institutions rather than speaking about specific people. It's describing what should be, not what is. Okay. Yeah. The the uh, the ideal, not the reality of, of right. human human nature and this world that is uh, that is being christianized but is not yet christianized right but what about this this phrase in Romans 13 and the authorities that exist are appointed by God i mean doesn't that mean that that okay god has appointed this person and so therefore we need to consider that when we are choosing to obey or disobey Right. And and the divine right of kings would really emphasize that phrase, and especially the ones that exist, i.e. Nero, existed mm-hmm. at that time, right? right. Well, we would say that the, the, the Greek word there, authorities, is dealing with the institutions, not the people. Uh, we're not anarchists. There are institutions of authority that we must honor, the offices we must honor. And the word for appointed there... Uh, equals regulated or determined, if you look it up in, in the Greek. And if you don't take that position, then we run into all kinds of contradictions. For example, uh, Hosea chapter 8 said of the current rulers of northern Israel, quote, they set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. So that verse is a complete rejection of the divine right of kings interpretation of of Romans 13. Uh, The word authorities refers to the institutions of authority rather than the individual, because there are many individuals God says, hey, I didn't give you that authority Mm -hmm. to to do that. Right, right. Yeah, you know, that that verse, Hosea chapter 8, I think is so important um, for us today. And that's, you know, part of what I'm trying to do in the 
in the confessionalist and say that, that, that really the responsibility of kings is to do what, what the Bible says and is to be set up uh, in authority with a covenant with, with God. And that's really what the Bible is calling for. So, so does this mean that we don't need to get all twisted up trying to figure out how Romans 13 squares with, with Nero or if it's talking about Nero or those kind of things? No, it, it's clear Nero contradicts several phrases in this chapter. He was a terror to good works. Uh, he tortured Christians. He put apostles to death. Instead of praising good as a magistrate should do, mm-hmm. uh, in verse 3, Nero praised sodomy and bestiality, and torture, and other evil things, and he condemned the good things that Christians were doing. Uh, So our interpretation takes the universal language very, very seriously. The other views really do not or contradict other scriptures. Yeah, and I think that's so important because we need to be able to have confidence in all the scripture, and and it, it it has caused problems with Christians when they're trying to understand this in historical context if they're just looking at the person but not the institutions, like you say. I like what you say here. Put simply, Romans 13 does not forbid civil disobedience. It cannot. On the contrary, it lays the groundwork for why resistance is sometimes necessary. Wow. I think that you just expanded the playing field for resistance. You opened up a lot uh, more options and and a larger scope for resistance, didn't you? Oh, yeah. The Bible gives a lot of options for Christians, uh, but it doesn't mean that just because you can resist that you need to resist. Okay, our resistance must submit to God's laws as well. We're not anarchists. Uh, we serve King Jesus. We honor the offices that uh, Jesus uh, puts in place. And so you'll see examples where Jesus resisted magistrates, and then when he went to the cross, he didn't resist. Mm. He was a lamb led to the slaughter. Uh, why? Because God was going to actually use that evil tyrant for another uh, purpose. And uh, he served uh, God's purposes. And so the Bible calls us to look at ethics. Really, uh, Bonson looked at four different perspectives on ethics that some people call deontology. Those are the rules of the commands. Mm -hmm. Uh, Teleology, the trajectory, the consequences, the goals that you have. Uh, And then the situation, uh, such as timing. You know, maybe the timing is not good. And then you got to look at personalism, such as... You know, who am I as a person? Am I a child? Uh, I'm going to be re- responding differently than if I am an adult. If I'm a magistrate, I'm going to respond in my resistance uh, differently than if I'm a citizen. Maybe I'm an invalid, and so I don't have as much responsibility. So those are four aspects of uh, ethics that yeah. need to be considered. You know, I like that. I mean, it's it it it's the rules. Well, um, um, it's where are we going? It's and who are the people involved? And and what's our our situation. We we have to look at all those angles, I think. Yeah. For example, the, the situation uh, might call for applying for a legal exemption rather than flaunting disobedience, you know, on the vaccine mandate, which is not really a vaccine, but anyway. But have, it is a mandate. It is a mandate. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> have I approached the authorities, you know, have I approached them humbly by way of petition? Have I exhausted other uh, means maybe of getting around them that have less onerous consequences? Because all four quadrants really need to be kept in uh, in mind. 
on teleology, I should be seeking to find out what does the Bible say about the consequences of an action? I mean, even Jesus said, is this a worthwhile consequence? Sometimes, yeah, even dying is worthwhile uh, based on the, the cost that God calls us to, to make. But he said in that um, parable of the tower, no one builds a tower without knowing whether he can finish it. Nobody goes to war without at least calculating uh, the, the, the feasibility of that war. So it's, it's looking at the consequences of resisting. Uh, but there are proper and improper ways of resisting as well. Uh, that deals with the person. Are we being arrogant? Mm -hmm. Are we being prideful? Uh, are we being cowardly? Uh, there's a lot of internal things. Our motives need to be examined as well. Okay. So that's like, like if we should resist, give us some things to consider as to when to resist. Well, um, when innocent life is at stake, uh, you know, the Hebrew midwives and Rahab are both good examples of that. Um, when the means of protecting or sustaining your family's life is at stake. Uh, for example, the Midianites were robbing Gideon blind. They would have starved to death if he didn't hide some of his grain. And uh, so, uh, you know, that was a kind of passive resistance. Uh, likewise, the right to self-defense from criminals is an inalienable right, according to the scripture. So when civil government confiscates all weapons, one does not have to turn them in. Yeah. Uh, the Philistine overlords frequently confiscated swords, and Jonathan and David and Deborah and many other people were doing something illegal but not unlawful. I Would make you, a big distinction between yeah. illegal and unlawful. Yes, very, very good. And just that that example of of weapons, wouldn't it be great if we had this understanding when, when we approach the right to bear arms instead of, you know, what, what we currently think? Um, that's really humanistic and, and, and pragmatic versus um, approaching this from what is the, the civil government allowed to do. Right. And we must think of what God wants, what God's commanding, and not just what a civil magistrate is commanding, because God is over the civil magistrate. Yeah. Yeah. So when a state oversteps uh, family jurisdiction, such as forbidding homeschooling, uh, it's not only appropriate, I think it's required that we resist. Mm -hmm. When the state oversteps church jurisdiction, for example, telling a church, hey, you got to close your doors, <laughs> we have to disobey, even if it means going underground as a, a church. And so there are a lot of examples that the book goes through on times when it's appropriate to resist. While we're, while we're on, let me just ask you about that last one. Let, you know, we see a lot of overstepping of church jurisdiction. It's happened you know, the last two years, still going on. Um, who should be resisting against that? Should it be the pastor? Should it be the church? Should it be the lesser magistrate? Should it be fathers? Who, who should be resisting on overstepping church jurisdiction? Right. And we always need to be asking ourselves uh, jurisdictional questions. There are some things that are within the jurisdiction of the individual. There are some things that are within the jurisdiction of the family that the church should not overstep uh, because we believe church and state have uh, are, must submit to the regulated principle of government. We cannot do anything in the church that the scripture is not explicitly authorized. Well, that makes for a pretty small church government, makes for a pretty small uh, state government as well. So I would say in terms of church jurisdiction, that would be the decision of the officers. 
and then the people would seek to be supportive of that. Now, that doesn't mean that church officers can't be tyrannical as well or cowardly. And so sometimes it's appropriate for the members of a church to petition their officers. Isn't the Bible say that we're required to do this? And they should do so humbly. Hmm. But sometimes church officers do need to be pushed to do the right thing. A father buys your book, and uh, and he's going to sit down with a cup of coffee or or a beer, and uh, and he's going to read it. How can he use your book to prepare for resistance before it's actually required? Well, this is a you know a preliminary book that just deals with the resistance aspect, but on pages, uh, let me take a look here, fourteen and fifteen. It uh, gives the enumerated powers of a magistrate, which, by the way, are not a great many. (laughs) And so it's very important the citizens understand what are these delegated, limited, and enumerated powers. And then on pages 16 through 17, it talks about uh, 10 of our responsibilities to the civil government, which a lot of citizens don't do. Uh, we're very derelict in our responsibility. So I think it's uh, really incumbent upon every Christian to study biblical civics, understand, because we are involved uh, in, in, um, in, in civics to some degree. It's not just voting. There's many other things. We need to be praying for our magistrates. Um, we need to be engaged at, in jury duty. Jury nullification, mm-hmm. most people have no conception, but that used to be a thing in American politics. Yeah. I'd like to see a construct by which the church can inform the civil magistrate uh, a little more directly on these enumerated powers, because everybody, you know, in and the conservative circles, we, we always talk about limited power, but the question is limited by what, right? So, uh, I would like to see um, states, and states, I've said this before, are really small nations. I mean, they've got everything that's required for a nation. Right. And um, so I would like to see uh, like-minded, reformed churches that actually believe the Bible is the only rule for faith and practice, um, that believe this, that the law still applies, to come together in some fashion and submit periodically to the civil magistrate, not only a reactive like this is what you should do in a certain situation, but a proactive, this is what you, the boundaries that you have are. This is, these are your limitations. And of course, I'd, I'd like to see um, a coalition of counties doing the same thing for the, uh, for the civil magistrate. And I, I just kind of go back to my Air Force days because it's very important to have the command structure that we call it, uh, C2, command and control. Right. So to have a structure by which uh, we can implement interposition or, or nullification and these kind of things because uh, that I think is going to help us a lot. Also, another thing that we used to do in the Air Force is we would uh, determine beforehand, before we went into battle, what's a legitimate target. You know, what what can we do and what can we not do? And uh, so I think that would really help us out. And I think your book's going to get us going. But what do you think about this idea of having uh, uh, organization, a church synod at the state level to inform the civil magistrate? Oh, I think it is a fantastic uh, idea. There really actually 
historically was a beautiful cooperation between church and state, where the state would ask, and you can find this in the Bible, uh, where they, uh, in Deuteronomy, lacked wisdom, and they would say to the priests or the scribes, hey, could you do some exegesis for us and help us yeah. go through this conundrum? And so they could ask for synods to gather and uh, wrestle through an issue. And likewise, the church can petition the government. Our denomination has petitioned the government and actually made drawn a line in the sand when it comes to the female draft yep. or yep. when it comes to these uh, horrible um, uh, vaccine mandates. Um, and so historically, churches have indeed uh, done that. They're the ones who are best equipped to exegete the scriptures and to navigate through some of these things. Well, at least if they're really studying the scriptures right. yeah, like they sure. should be. Right. <laughs> um, but um, uh, did you know that the, the churches in the book of Acts were illegal churches? I don't think I did know that. Yes. Uh, they were supposed to, according to Roman law, no one was supposed to meet. I think it was anything more than five people. Mm, sounds to meet sounds familiar. A license. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> and oh. they were supposed to get a licet is the, the the term for it and get a corporate status approved. And and Rome was very much into freedom of religion so long as you submitted to the state. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's as long as we stay in charge. Okay. Well, this book, uh, you know, just kind of getting back to the title of it, Divine Right of Resistance, Biblical Options for Opposing Tyranny. You've got the crown upside down. And this is the idea that that God gives us a divine right of resistance. And I, you know, I'd like to see this to be an operating construct. Uh, Calvin said, I think he said something like, resistance to tyranny is duty to God. Oh, yes. That was a ringing cry in the American War for Independence, which was not technically a revolution. Uh, I, we're opposed to revolution, which tends toward anarchism and breeds more and more revolutions. It was a lawful war of interposition where lawfully ordained magistrates that were elected by the people uh, resisted uh, a higher... Uh, power that was actually violating their contract, their covenant. And the concept of covenant is so important in this uh, whole area of resistance. We're bound by a covenant as citizens. We can't just resist willy-nilly. Right. Well, there is lots more to talk about. I just kind of feel like we've scratched the surface, and we're. I, I look forward to many more of these. Phil, thank you for the time today. Very welcome. Very welcome. <laughs>